0: And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 169 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with our friend Patrick Pallas about his recipe for solving the access to justice problem.
1: Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Spotlight, and New Law Business Model. We appreciate their support, and we will tell you more about them later in the show.
0: So I'm super excited that a recent Lawyerist Lab applicant sent us a message that said, I'm a longtime listener of the podcast and would be lying if I said the podcast wasn't a reason I left my firm to go out on my own towards the end of last year. You as hosts and your guests motivated me and pushed me into making a move I couldn't be happier with. I That's love, awesome. Yeah, I love hearing a story of how any of the work we're doing is helping lawyers make positive change in their practices, and this was very heartening to hear. Very cool.
1: If you are interested too, that came in as part of a lab application, and if you're interested in learning more about the lab or applying, you can find that at lawyerist.com slash lab. You still have a little bit of time left before the very first cohort kicks off on May 1st.
0: Our podcast this week with Patrick is really great timing since next month he and Cleo's Jack Newton will be keynoting the AVO Lawyernomics Conference in Las Vegas. I will be there, and I'd love to connect with as many of you as possible in person. If you're interested in joining me in Vegas in May, Avo has offered our listeners a $150 discount off of the price of Lawyernomics tickets. You can just use the code FRIENDS150 at checkout and get a $150 discount, and I'd love to see you there.
1: Now we've got a brief conversation with Alexis Martinelli from New Law Business Model, and then we'll jump into my conversation with
0: Patrick.
2: Hi, everyone. This is Alexis Neely, and about 13 years ago, I realized that the traditional law practice model was broken, and as a mom with two little kids at home, I went and started my own law practice and created a new law business model that allowed me to build my law practice from scratch into a 1000000 dollars year law business serving clients I absolutely loved In just three years. And since then, I've taken those strategies that I tried and tested and learned about in my own practice. And I've taught them to hundreds of lawyers who have since then built six and seven figure law practices that they absolutely love using this new law business model.
1: So, Alexis, maybe you could start out by telling us what is broken about the traditional law firm business model.
2: Sure. I'm sure many lawyers here are really feeling it in their own lives right now that billing by the hour or flat fees that are way too low to deliver a service that is actually any different than what clients could get for themselves online is simply a race to the bottom mentality that results in lawyers working way too hard, not earning enough money on the cash flow roller coaster, constantly feast or famine style and totally stressed out. And most lawyers are doing it because they want to be affordable. And yet they aren't seeing that trying to be the most affordable and billing by the hour is actually oftentimes the most costly for their clients and definitely for themselves.
1: That makes a lot of sense to me because you can only bill so many hours in a day, and if you charge less for it, then you just make less money or you work yourself to death.
2: Yeah, that's what's happening for most lawyers. So what's the
1: way around this? What's the solution?
2: Well, the solution that we've identified is called the affordability paradox, and it is to get rid of charging by the hour and move to flat fee billing. That allows you to command premium pricing while still being the most affordable option for your clients to receive the outcome they desire. And that's the paradox, is that you get to charge a premium fee while also still being the most affordable option for your clients.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So when you're doing this, you've mentioned in the past, a couple of strategies. What are the two strategies you need to use to try and overcome that?
2: Yeah. To leverage the affordability paradox, um, you have to use the strategy of preeminence. And that means that you really do have to be the best at what you do, even if you are just starting out. And the good news is, is that By leveraging technology and systems, you actually can become the best at what you do in your community relatively quickly. So that's number one. You have to become the best at what you do. And number two is that you need to break the time barrier. Now, the time barrier occurs when you're trading your time for dollars. So, for example, your fees are specifically based on how long you spend on something. That's what we've been taught. That's what we've learned. And a lot of lawyers think that they're breaking the time barrier by charging flat fees. But, in fact, you're stuck here because you haven't really done it. You're still trading your time for dollars. So when you break the time barrier, what you're doing is you're building systems that allow you to leverage your time and get more and more efficient, And you can still be the most affordable option for your clients while at the same time earning more because you have broken the connection between time and money. You are now no longer charging for your time. Instead, you're charging for very specific outcomes that you've become the best at delivering, using systems, leveraging technology. And that is a huge piece of really building a life and law practice you love.
1: You know, that last bit is something that I think uh, often gets skipped when people talk about whether or not they want to bill flat fees. You have to think differently about the way you practice law or you really are just... You're trying to estimate how many hours it will take you, and that's not really billing flat fees. So I can hear the objections already, and so I might as well give voice to them. Can every law firm use these strategies?
2: No, not every law firm can use these strategies. In fact, most of you are in the wrong kind of practice for this. You're either taking whatever comes in the door. We call you a door lawyer. You can't use these strategies with that kind of a practice. um, Or you are in a non-systematizable practice area like conflict-based litigation where you you really can't estimate the value of the outcomes that you provide and what it will take to get there and systematize that. Now, we do have a video series for you um, where you can learn about the new law business model and the specific practice areas that allow you to leverage this kind of a model and to master the affordability paradox and break the time barrier so you can have a life in law practice you love. And coming up in May, we have more in-depth training on these two concepts. So when you register for the video series, we'll be able to let you know about that, but it's definitely not for every practice area. It's definitely not for every lawyer. But if you are the kind of lawyer who wants to have full control over your schedule, deliver a truly meaningful service to your clients, and have complete control over your income and not be on the cash flow roller coaster, it'd be worth it for you to look at how are you choosing what your practice area is so that you can leverage these new ways of practicing law that you and your clients will love.
1: And so if you'd like to learn more, you can go to newlawbusinessmodel.com slash lawyerist. That's newlawbusinessmodel, all one word, dot com slash lawyerist. Thanks so much, Alexis.
2: Thank you, Sam.
3: I'm Patrick Pallas. I'm the past president of the Washington State Bar and I currently serve on the uh, executive board for the National Conference of Bar Presidents. I have a uh, small firm in Tacoma, Washington, and uh, like to think of myself as someone whose purpose is to help move this profession forward in the best way possible uh, for consumers and clients.
1: Thanks for being with us today Patrick. It's good to talk to you again. And that last bit is kind of why we're here today. You kind of started up a Twitter discussion a little while back that became your Access to Justice Summit at ABA Tech Show recently and there you kind of presented a prescription for the legal industry. And so I thought maybe we could just dive right into talking about what that prescription is and parse it out and figure, you know, help people understand what you're proposing and what it means and And then maybe we can talk a little bit about what it will take to get us there.
3: Yeah, happy to. So this is a little bit of cart before the horse, but we can be happy to start here. So the concept is that there is an answer, but what comes before the answer is both the problem and the reason for the problem. But I'm happy to start with the answer. (laughs) And so the answer is, right, it's like 42. The answer is what we need to do as profession is five things. And the first is to re regulate. Second, a multidisciplinary legal service system that, third, accepts investment capital for the purpose of, four, building a profitable legal system. Two, and number five, provide affordable legal services to all consumers. So when you put that together, what we need to do is create a profession that we re-regulate a multi-disciplinary legal service system that accepts investment capital for the purpose of building a profitable legal system to provide affordable legal services to all consumers.
1: Do you feel like you want to back up and talk a little bit about why
3: that's necessary? I do,
1: if you don't mind. Yeah, no, let's Uh, do it. Let's dive into that.
3: And I think everyone looks at a profession a little bit uh, differently. And part of my lens to looking at the profession comes from being a pastor bar president and working with bar presidents as part of the National Conference of Bar Presidents across the country. And so it gives me perhaps a little higher elevation view of the the practice than I get when I'm sitting at my desk in my office in Tacoma, Washington, practicing workers' compensation law. So I'll, I'll share that kind of vision. The profession, I think, has a number of problems. And, and while I may not iterate these to everyone's satisfaction, I think everyone will find that some piece of this is true no matter what lens you use. And so those problems look like this, that we only represent 70 to 80 percent of the people in this Stop. country.
1: You can't say that. Why is that? Like, I mean, that that number is that's not the right number.
3: Well, the
1: 80% number comes from an old LSC survey of the number of people who are turned away by legal aid programs. So 80% is does not represent the actual access to justice gap. It's a very specific number about a very specific segment of the access to justice gap.
3: agree that there is some debatability about this and that it applies mostly to the low income and to a lesser degree to the moderate means group of people. Our study in Washington, of course, the the larger study shows there's a huge gap. And I think most people will use that number. And I realize that as you parse it, it gets to be a debatable issue.
1: I mean, I'm happy to agree that there is a sizable gap. I just want everybody to stop using a number that only applies to a small slice of that gap. So
3: understood. So if it for purposes cause this is not a, a sticking point or critical, right. although it's important, to understanding that the majority of people in this country either choose not to have legal representation or simply can't afford it. The second problem is that the wages for attorneys by and large are are flat or even decreasing when adjusted for inflation, that our market share is declining for attorneys and I think most recognize rising for non-lawyer legal services, Uh, that we have an underfunded court system and really it's not able to, to effectuate the purpose it's there to serve, which is access for our community. We have high legal education costs, which are a barrier to entry. Uh, our legal system is failing to provide really the requisite skills that we need to successfully run a legal business today. And granted, there are schools that are doing this, but I think these, these are broad generalities. We don't have investment capital to grow our profession or to adjust consumer needs that are out there. We have no multidisciplinary diversity within our profession to allow us to grow or to mature or, or really to adequately compete We have a monopolistic and protectionist regulatory system that creates barriers to accessibility uh, to consumers and to our citizens. We have a national organization that that I love and I'm, I'm deeply part of, but really that's been unable to effectuate meaningful solutions to any of these problems. And maybe the most troubling. The ABA. And and most troubling, perhaps, is that we, if we maintain this trajectory, if we if we stay on this trend line, that our entire profession simply leads to further and faster decline. So I really think that, that that's kind of the, the problem that we're trying to solve. And some people see a piece of it. Some people see all of it. When you sit at your desk as a lawyer in a small firm, maybe you don't see all of that piece. So,
1: OK, so that's a good context and backdrop. I think when you lay it all out there, it sounds a little bit bleak, but hopefully it's not. <laughs> and um, and now let's take apart your prescriptions. So um, so first of all, you said re-regulate. What do you mean by re-regulating?
3: Well, there's one more piece to this that I think that comes to what re-regulation means, and that's uh, looking to a moment at what our regulations are, right? We have this this kind of artificial monopoly in, in law, and it's created by these two protective barriers, both that you have to go through law school and then you have to pass a bar exam. And we get this beautiful opportunity to create a scarcity of resources in economic terms where we create a high demand because there's few lawyers. It's a supply and demand problem that's created by this regulation, this protectionist that's created with these barriers that we set up through our, mostly through our ethics regulations, but through, through state law. And it gives us some special advantages, right? Because we have an occupational license mm-hmm. because we're self-regulated. And because lawyers who are judges decide all the cases. And one of the tools that I think lawyers have besides, you know, the bar and the bar exam and having our own license and our own self-regulation and judges is that we try to protect and grasp onto our industry by saying we need to protect from the unauthorized practice of law. And we can't – we have to stop everyone from coming in. And so we keep our competitors out – we keep our lawyer wages sustained, although, frankly, not high. And we think this is really uh, a sweet deal. But the thing that happens when we do this really is quite bad. It's quite hard for lawyers, and I don't know that lawyers always see these things. I'm going to go through a short list, and then we'll, we'll turn to some of the solutions here, Sam. But the things that happen is that when you create these artificial barriers and we silo ourselves inside of our own occupation without being able to get help from the outside, these things happen. There's less effort made to innovate because we're in a protected state, that results in in decreasing growth for the entire profession because we don't have competition the firms that are out there become concentrated, really, really, really quite homogenous. Firms look more and more alike in size and in shape and what they do. Uh, there really isn't standout firms when you look across our country. There's really minimal or, or no capital investment that comes into infrastructure, no well, before, research before and development. Before we start
1: talking about capital, let's finish talking about re-regulation. So, yeah, but essentially you're not quibbling with one rule here or a rule there. Um, you're using this as a way to talk about opening up the market. Correct. Yeah,
3: really. It, it, it has to be because without things like investment or diversity of business partners, uh, we have this huge decrease in productivity and frankly, flatlining in wages. I hear lawyers telling me, you know, it's just been it was, Christmas was hard. There wasn't really people coming in or it's getting harder and harder and more competitive out there to get clients. Uh, I'm getting fewer and fewer opportunities to find big cases, and I don't know what they're seeing. That it's, it's all of these things coming together that's. I mean, as a
1: as a practical matter, the industry has already been reregulated. It, it's just taken a while for the industry to wake up and realize that that's happened. I mean, <laughs> lawyers are competing with non-lawyers right now and that's part of the reason why business has gotten harder for lawyers and because we're not we're lawyers aren't doing a good job competing with the alternatives
3: no that's that's absolutely right I mean there there are legal service companies that are that have been working the way from the bottom up taking the cases that we don't want uh, charging less than we would ever do right and now it's starting to develop into competing one-on-one with lawyers, and even though it's maybe big as a revenue dollar, when you look at the entire profession, it's still a relatively small portion of the, say, $300 billion are estimated to be part of the uh, revenue that, that is the legal practice.
1: Mm-hmm. And so when you talk about multidisciplinary legal service system, you're also talking about having non-lawyers involved.
3: That's right. That's right. I, I, I mean, know. And
1: Jordan Furlong hates to talk about non-lawyers <laughs> versus lawyers, and I, and I, I totally agree. get that, I but it is useful in this conversation to make that distinction, for sure.
3: That's because it's kind of a us versus them thing, and, and it really can't be an us versus them thing. I mean, we really right. are all in this together, and our goal really has to be the same goal, which is to, to serve the public, that our duty is to provide legal service to the public. And granted, there's other things we need. We need a sustainable business model. We need to make money. We need, in fact, to be, to be profitable. Uh, but we need that ju- just inwardly for ourselves out of selfishness. We need that for everybody else. It's the idea of putting the Austrian mask on you first, right? We have to survive as a solid, profitable business enterprise, Uh, That can then go and do the things that the community needs it to do.
1: I mean, so far, I feel like these things are basically re-regulating is sort of waking up to reality. Lawyers are already competing. And, you know, 50 years ago, there weren't good alternatives to lawyers and law schools, bar exams was a reasonable proxy for competence when there really wasn't any other way to become competent. But now... There are lots of other ways to become competent, and that just doesn't work anymore. And there are non-lawyer providers out there who are competing favorably with lawyers. So, you know, throwing out UPL is mostly just waking up and smelling reality, I I think at least. And I, I think it's astonishing how you know, maybe a year or two ago, the ABA, I think it was at a mid-year meeting or something, the ABA was discussing whether or not to allow non-lawyer ownership. And uh, a whole bunch of people stood up and basically said, you know, no, I want protection, which is not the same as saying, no, we need to protect consumers. (laughs) And so I think if that's where we've gone, you know, UPL should go out the window. So I'm with you there so far. Let's talk about accepting investment capital, though. That's one where I'm not sure everyone understands what the difference between accepting investment capital is and what if lawyers just started reinvesting in their own
3: firms for a change. Yeah. So there's layers to this. I guess in the simplest form, we take a model of, say, a tech company and you have a great idea and a viable business and you would like to expand that because it's scalable, it's smart, it's something everybody needs. And so the first thing that you may do is start looking for uh, venture capital. You need money to come in. You probably also need some some expertise from different fields to come in as well. And and this is a, a model that that lawyers I'm going to say want, whether they realize it or not. What we do is we practice law. We write pleadings. We go to court. We work on contracts. We represent you know families. And, it, and to lawyers who've always done it this way, it probably feels like that's um, just the way we do it. The reality is that we have a set of handcuffs on us because we don't have the money from other areas of the economy to be able to build legal into what it needs to do. We don't have the help of other professions to help grow us. I mean, imagine for a minute that if truck drivers were in charge of the entire trucking industry, what would that industry look like if the only way you could own a trucking company was if you were a truck driver? Or what if you were a, a, a train engineer? Uh, would you expect to see this massive railroad system that's in place if everything was run by train engineers or even maybe a better example or pilots? If only pilots could control the industry, would we have airports? Would we have the Alaska Airlines, you know, airlines out there? And so the same concept that we as lawyers believe that we can silo the entire profession and everything about that profession and that we have all of the skills and the abilities to run that infrastructure is crazy. And so the reason we need investment is because we need money from outside of our profession to come in and reinvigorate innovation and growth and opportunity and, frankly, other skill sets so we can expand law to serve the people that it's not serving today.
1: I go back and forth on this a little bit. Like I think a lot about the law firm that I would build if I dropped lawyerists and went back into practice today or tomorrow or whatever. And, uh, and, it, and it would require um, me to have non-lawyer owners. I, I don't think I could build a firm that I would want to build without it, but I think I could probably figure out a way to get it done. But at the same time, like uh, on the other hand, I'm not sure I want a company functioning at the scale of Uber. To become the next legal services provider, because you know that that sort of unicorn-level Silicon Valley approach uh, seems to go wrong, you know about ten times for every time that it goes right, and that idea of throwing all your eggs into one basket scares me a bit. I don't think I actually like that idea very much. Now I realize, you know, state barriers is maybe a different issue, and maybe it makes it harder to get to that level. But um, I, I don't know. I go back and forth on whether or not I think outside investment is a great idea. But also because I see law firms like, say, Countertax up in Canada or Billy Tarasio's firm, who we've had on the podcast, who aren't pulling all of their profits out every month, who are reinvesting in their firm, having a long view, building for the future, that are able to build innovative firms in the way that I think we want to happen. And they don't require outside capital to do it.
3: Well, it's it's all a matter of scale, I think, isn't it? If, if we're satisfied representing a smaller portion of the community, then sure, we can look to sol- solo, small practitioners, even medium firms, and say, why don't you guys just be a little more innovative? Save your money, put your pennies together in your savings account, and maybe you can grow your practice a little bit better. And all that is good, and all it's important, everything you say is right. But it's a matter of scale, because there's this huge population that's underserved or, or not served at all. And if our goal at any point is to have the desire to provide adequate and affordable legal services to people in our country that need it, then the model that we're in, even if we're amazing savers and even if we're individually innovative, will never get us to that point. And in fact, I think that the pressures from outside will continue to consume our practice faster than we at the glacial pace that we move can grow it.
1: I think you're probably right that um, this is another one where it's just wake up and smell reality (laughs) because, uh, again, there there are companies who are taking investment capital, who are operating at massive scale and trying to figure out how to gain inroads on the legal community, although I actually think what most of those companies are doing is disrupting markets that aren't lawyers markets. For example, I think uh, you know, LegalZoom is starting to figure out how to compete with lawyers, mostly by partnering with lawyers. But before that, they were mostly competing with the forms that you could buy at OfficeMax, and they disrupted the heck out of that legal market. But I don't think they did a whole lot to lawyers at first, but they're finding their way in. And so I think, uh, you know to a certain extent, yeah, wake up and smell reality. Um, Non-investment uh, capital-based companies are definitely finding their way in and competing.
3: So. Well, you know, the, the, the work certainly is in finding what that balance is, right? I mean, yeah. the fear that lawyers have is, hey, if we let in an accounting company or an insurance company into our profession, then they're going to steer their direction for their benefit and and somehow our integrity will be in, impugned by all of this and won't be able to practice with the, you know, ivory tower approach to ethics that we always have. And, and, and while I, I give a nod to that and and respect that, that lawyers really I just want. I don't
1: think there's any evidence for that, though.
3: Well, I mean, you look at the current model of, of law to say that large law firms aren't motivated by money. Right. Um, is 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 kind of a crazy idea. We're not an ivory tower industry, even though I think we we aspire to be such. But thinking that lawyer that lawyers are going to be corrupted by money at this day and age with the structure we already have, I I think doesn't make any sense anymore. So bringing in other companies, it's a matter of what that balance looks like, right? We're the ones who are the experts in law, but we're not experts in anything else. And yet we're running this entire industry by ourselves. We need help.
1: Yeah. I think Jordan Furlong, to mention him again, makes a pretty compelling case that uh, what most lawyers think of when they think of client service is anything but, <laughs> and and that if that's what we're trying to protect, then we're probably going about it the wrong way. You know, I feel like working with a lawyer is way too often, uh, sort of on at the same place in my life as going to buy a used car or getting my teeth pulled. And if if that's where lawyers are at when it comes to client service, then they deserve to be uh competed and and they deserve to have other people take the business away from them I mean, maybe I'm I guess l- let me try and move us forward to the next piece which is uh, yeah, building sure. a profitable legal system say more but I, I think you've already been touching on that um, but say more about that
3: yeah they really are kind of part and parcel and let me just tie a couple of these things together with with the idea of a profitable legal system um, we really need to have a system that is sustainable which, ours at the moment, really doesn't seem to be. Both Avo and uh, Clio have done studies to show that lawyers aren't making any more money today than they were 10 years ago. And when you uh, when you factor in CPI, then then really maybe we're exactly flat or declining uh, in in wages. And that's just not sustainable, particularly with the outside pressure that's coming to uh, to our profession from other companies and other legal service uh, providers. One other piece here that's think is important comes from the Clio Trends Report. Like I mentioned like the, the five bad things, the six bad things that are happening to us because we have put ourselves in this protectionist silo thinking it's protecting us. But what it really is doing is keeping us from being able to realize our potential. And one of the biggest problems inside of our protectionist shell that we're in is that we have decreased firm productivity because we don't have the expertise, we don't have the investment or the ability. The Legal Trends Report that Cleo put out in 2017 gave some pretty startling statistics that I think most people have heard. And and without going into any great detail, I'll just mention this, this critical part that of the eight-hour workday of lawyers, they really expend 2.3 hours or 29% of their workday on billable tasks. And then they only get paid for 1.6 of it, right, as utilization rate. And and that left Clio with with this cliffhanger like – where do the other six hours go, lawyers, <laughs> right? What did you do with your other six hours of your yeah. day? And I think everybody read this national study of the last two years and said, wow, that's that's pretty shocking. Yeah. I, I think this just underscores a point that we have decreased firm productivity because we don't have the skills or the abilities. Really I, I'm not to sure that it's decreased. It's
1: just static, probably.
3: It, 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 some will say it's absolutely static. I mean, it the reason why increased.
1: lawyers have to charge two, 300 bucks an hour is because we're only billing two hours a day. Right.
3: No, I think I think there's truth to that. So the the critical part of of this this concept what we need is this profitability. We, we, and it's the reason I think we need to open up our regulations to bring in money and bring in expertise, again, going back to the idea that pilots can't run airports or, or airline industry, right, that we need to bring in the expertise and a greater infrastructure, including research and development, including capital investment, to find new tools, new ways, new partners in order to expand legal to uh, provide services at a rate that is lower because with size and scale comes decreased prices so that we can actually provide services to everybody. So profitability comes from opening up that door um, to investment, to uh, innovation, to growth, uh, to, importantly, productivity so we can be as productive eight hours a day out of eight hours a day as opposed to one you know, six hours a day out of eight hours right. a day
1: in a way, I think this also touches on this. Well, lawyers can do those things, right? Lawyers can do project management, they can do bookkeeping, blah, blah, blah. And and it reminds me of something that Richard Susskind always says in his presentation about, you know, the end of lawyers or the future of lawyers, whatever. Um, you know, he says lawyers are the only kind of people who think they can go to a two hour seminar and all of a sudden they know how to do project <laughs> management. Um, and and right. the thing is, like, so, you know, we, we launched our scorecard recently, right? And and you've seen it and everything, nothing yes. nothing on there is rocket science, but there are a lot of F's, you know, and, it, and it's because sure, lawyers can look at everything on that scorecard and understand what it is and get their heads around how to do it, but they aren't. And in the same, by the same token, there's no reason lawyers can't band together and pool their money and create the same kind of capital that they could get from outside. They could, uh, you know, there are, there are enough wealthy lawyers out there to do that, but they're not doing it. And it's going to take something, some kind of a kick in the pants, to get most lawyers to do that. Um, and now that we're starting to see measurements of that, it's the, the magnitude of the problem is really coming home to me. That, yeah, it's it's hard work. Lawyers need to start doing some hard work that they haven't done before, and stop looking at problems and saying, "Oh, we can do that. We don't need somebody else to come and help us."
3: Well, imagine if you were the the kid on the on the playground, and you wanted to set up a team. And you had no diversity of players. Like, I'll mm-hmm. take that guy and that's it. Yeah. Right. I mean, there's nobody else can complain your team. You expect to have a winning team. I mean, imagine what we could do if we could take accountants or uh, legal tech companies, uh, marketing companies, people with investment and in, in capital management strategies uh, and integrate those into a law firm. I mean, the the rich tapestry of strength and ability, uh, it, it, it gives a strong bench all the way across to run businesses that are so much smarter, so much more diversified than we run today. We really are trying to run the entire industry off the idea that pleadings make an industry or that going to court right. make an industry. And it, it doesn't. It's a it's a very limited skill that's very, very important, but it's not a skill uh, that is enough to encompass or you know, be the umbrella for an entire industry. And, and once lawyers realize that we have solid ourselves and caused our own problem here, and that the solution is that we can grow, we can make more money, we can represent more people, uh, we can leverage uh, our great lawyering skills, uh, by bringing in others and taking in investment or hicking in capital and, and these things, the, the better off we'll be. It's, it's, it's a little surprising to me that, that we're comfortable holding on so tightly to this model because it's what we know and we're so scared of the Unknown out there, even though I think the unknown is written on the wall in great big letters, that it's coming and it's ours to drive the bus in that direction to grow and revitalize our profession, or it's us to sit in the back seat, let somebody else drive, and let our profession decrease and decrease and decrease and be minimized and minimized until we lose all of our power, our voice, and our ability to drive it.
1: So we're going to take a few minutes to hear from our sponsors, and when we come back, we're going to keep talking about access to justice with Patrick Pallas. We'll be right back.
0: Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars. LawPay.
1: The legal environment is more competitive than ever and small law firms are feeling the pinch. With over 1.3 million attorneys in the United States and counting, it can be hard to stand out from the crowd. That's why spotlight branding helps lawyers become unforgettable. Spotlight branding is a different kind of internet marketing company. They don't put their clients on the SEO hamster wheel. They don't ask them to burn thousands of dollars on speculative pay-per-click advertising. Instead, they're focused on the fundamentals of legal marketing that have worked for centuries. They use the internet to build a premium brand for solo and small firm lawyers. systems in place to create top-of-mind awareness, allowing their clients to maximize referrals
0: and repeat business. It's the smart way to grow your law firm. Learn more at spotlightbranding.com slash lawyerist. If you've ever considered doing estate planning but think it's too dry and boring or have been afraid it might not earn you what you need because you have to compete against LegalZoom or the dreaded $1,500 estate plans check out the website estateplanningrules.com to get a free guide that lays out step-by-step how some lawyers are regularly commanding average fees of four to $5,000 per estate plan, and you'll discover why regular everyday people are happy to pay well for estate planning services that you'll love to provide. That's estateplanningrules.com, brought to you by New Law Business Model, where you get to love being a lawyer again.
1: So let me take the last thing on here. which is providing affordable legal services to all consumers, which I think gets at, you know, when I when I barked stop at you at the very beginning, it's because I actually, <laughs> I, well, but I, I actually think we talk about access to justice as if it is an access to legal aid problem too often. Um, too often we act like the solution is to get more free lawyers in the hands of people who can't afford lawyers. And I think that is missing the point, right? There is an, there's an access to um, legal aid problem. There's an access to good lawyers problem. There's an access to information problem. There's an access to understanding problem. Access to justice is built out of so many components that don't have anything to do with legal aid or the number of people legal aid can handle or the number of volunteer lawyers in a market. And I think that's what you're getting at here, which is we need to meet each consumer where they are at the price level that they can afford. And we need to have an array of legal services options so that everybody has can get their problems solved at a price level that they can afford.
3: Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. I mean, I volunteer my time like I'm sure you do, and and so many in the profession do. It really is uh, a huge piece of who we are as profession. It's a proud place that we have as lawyers. I think lawyers volunteer time more than any other profession out there, more than architects or accountants and even doctors. But no amount of volunteering uh, going down to your local clinic is going to meet this Gap that's out there for the need for, for legal services. It's got to come from a whole lot of, it's got to come from a brand new direction, frankly. And the the broader idea of driving down costs by widening the tent for all of us, I think, is the way that we, we get there. We need to be able to bring in money and really retool our practices one by one or state by state in order to make law affordable. Because at the current rate of the cost of being a lawyer through our law schools uh, and taking the bar, Uh, the barriers that exist, the cost that it requires us to charge in order to provide services. It's just, it's ultimately not workable. And so at the end of the day, I think we can do all of these things that that I've mentioned, investment to to re-regulation, et cetera, to help provide affordable legal services to all. That's where we end up at the end of the day. If we provide affordable legal services to everybody, A, we meet our charges, our obligation to to the community. B, it can be profitable and sustainable for us to do that. I mean, I know you've heard these numbers out there before that that some would say there's upwards of 180 billion dollars in this latent market, this market that really hasn't been utilized by lawyers because we don't know how to get to it or we can't uh, charge low enough amounts of money to access it. Uh, and so other companies probably just stepped in to, to start that. Um, I mean, but that's I think the you, you we were with me at. when
1: we heard from Arag talking about how you know, part of that market is, you know, I, I always push back on affordability because affordability isn't actually the biggest part of the problem. Arag was digging into uh, the numbers of the one of an, the ABA's studies that showed that the majority of people who don't hire a lawyer, don't hire a lawyer because they don't think they need one or they don't realize they have a problem that a lawyer could help with or um, a number. But it, it takes a long time before you drill down to I couldn't afford it as the reason why people don't hire lawyers, which I think is is an interesting and more compelling problem that uh, it's not just a marketing problem, although I think, you know, we could do a better job, you know, putting ourselves out there, but there's so much more uh, nuance to that, uh, why people aren't hiring lawyers and the access to legal help problem than, than I think we sometimes put out there. And and I, I don't, I think your prescription is directionally probably correct, Um you know, we, I think we could have an hour-long podcast on each one of those things and then take questions for another 45 <laughs> minutes after that. Right, right. Um, and then and then spend three days at ABA conferences arguing about them um, in the legislature there. But let's take your prescription um, and move into the part where I start getting frustrated, which is how do we make it happen?
3: Yeah, no, agreed. And so w- during the summit, you know, I, I, I put out this idea of what we need to do. And as everyone talked, no one pushed back against, that's right, that's, that's the problem, what we need to do. Uh, and then it was, you know, an hour and a half discussion about well, what does it look like? How do we get from here to there? And so the conversation really is about building that bridge. How do we get to those goals with the current infrastructure and with the current economic pressures that we have? And you know, here's my, I guess my, my short answer to the degree that there is one. I'm not sure that the ABA is in a place to take us there. I'm not sure despite the great leadership of so many state bar presidents that I work with, that even they're in the best place, although they're an important place, to drive this forward because so many of the rank-and-file lawyers really see all of these issues as a threat to their livelihood and an insult to their integrity as a, as a lawyer – as opposed to seeing it as an opportunity, and in fact a necessity that's coming, I, if we don't, I mean
1: that, don't. that feels like the biggest thing to me. Right, a bar association is an association of its members. It's it's supposed to represent them and advocate for them. And doing what you suggest means turning your back on probably the vast majority of your membership, which I don't I don't think bar associations can do that.
3: Well, I, I think that's where you and I may Say more. Yeah. go different directions here. As a bar president and as one of the people that trains presidents nationally, our number one duty is to the public as a bar and as bar presidents and as bar association. That's written in to to many, if not all, missions in bars in one form or another. In Washington, it's the very first sentence that our, our duty is to the public, hmm. And the idea that bars are just trade associations, I think, is, is a, a common misperception. I think we're there to help grow the profession. We're there to help the profession succeed and survive, but not at the cost of doing harm to the profession or harm to the community. The community comes first. And so while it's hard for members of bars sometimes to swallow the idea that their bar has to do something for the greater good – It's absolutely a requirement of our mission as bar presidents and as as bars. Okay, but for those bars that, but as
1: as a practical matter, let's say a bar association went, okay, we're no longer supporting unauthorized practice of law. That's not our thing. Um, We are acknowledging and welcoming all of the non-lawyers who want to provide legal services to the public, and you guys are just going to have to get used to that. And uh, we are also supporting a path towards uh, regulating the provision of legal services no matter where it comes from. Their membership is going to crater. And as far as I know, almost every voluntary bar association out there is really, really struggling to get members right now. Like that's an doing as you suggest is an existential threat to every voluntary bar association, right? Yeah,
3: if you did it for purposes of building bar membership, I don't, I don't think that's the right pair of glasses. <laughs> well, to, it won't to, help, to, yeah, to, to, to look through, right? But the reality is that, that that bars are struggling to be relevant to their members right now, anyway, and and while they are, and they're critical. The profession is in a place that that feels a little bit like heading into crisis, and there needs to be solutions. And I think bar leadership are the ones that need to step up. They're the ones that need to have the knowledge to make the solutions and to take the brave step forward. But even if the bars as a partner, as an incubator, as an innovator can't take us all the way there, it's a reason that we have Supreme Court's. Because Supreme Courts can change uh, the rules. Um, In some states, we look at legislatures to do that. And and frankly, the the pushback for us is if lawyers don't take steps to represent the community, to put the public first, if lawyers look like we're being protectionist and only looking after our interests, then – Supreme courts and importantly, legislatures will step in like they did in California and say, no, your duty is to the public. And here's what your bar is going to look like. And we're going to take away your bar fees until you get it right. And we're going to put in public members onto your board. And here is what you're going to do.
1: I mean, I suppose another uh, possibility is, you know, (laughs) lawyers who don't get with the program and wake up and smell reality. Uh, Aren't going to be paying dues in a few years anyway because they're not going to be competing. They're going to be out
3: That may be as as the market get gets gets harder, Mm -hmm. you know I I guess what I and I'll say this one more time for the importance is There is a, a method here. It's a blueprint here. The lawyers survive and thrive by opening the doors sharing investment bringing in other disciplines and we all thrive together to grow the kind of legal solutions that we need to do. How that gets implemented is sometimes a challenge. And I'm going to suggest to you there's a couple of uh, discussions going on around our uh, legal community of ways to do that. Um, and I'll start with the one that's the least popular and, frankly, I think is least viable, which is simply deregulate. Um, mm-hmm. There's an argument going on out there that all of these occupational licenses are this protective barrier that's really driving up costs, and they're unnecessary. I do see need to have uh, regulation for lawyers. Uh, I'd like to see those regulations for other areas of law, other legal disciplines as well. In Washington, we have the triple LT, so we have a set of regulations for them. I'd like to see the tent opened up so there's regulation, but regulation that varies more like in the medical community where you have different tiers of, of medical providers from surgeons to family doctors to nurse practitioners to LPNs to RNs to CNAs, right? There's a whole laundry list there that the law does not have at this
1: point. And I realize there's some thorny issues in there like can you actually, can you regulate non-lawyers if they're not a part of it? It, There's probably a fundamental change in how regulation works. It has to be probably statutory, not based on the Bar Association model at that point, which maybe brings us back to the existential threat again but um, but (sighs) we should probably set that aside for now because that's a whole different road but it it probably can be done. It's just a question of how. So
3: I'd suggest deregulation Regulations isn't the answer. It is probably more specific regulation and regulations that, that don't put handcuffs on us, but rather open doors to provide more services. I think a more sustainable way to do this is through our Supreme Courts to make regulatory changes, right? One state can make changes. The best models will determine, be determined by the market. And if if a state makes the right changes and those lawyers start to thrive and that state uh, Sees success and the access accessibility of of, of lawyers uh, begins to to grow. Uh, then other others will follow because they see. Look at Washington lawyers are doing well. Their their the, the amount of money they're making is going up. Their their whole ecosystem is is thriving by because they made these changes.
1: And you think with all the jurisdictions out there, we'll we'll eventually get some experimenters. We have to. Yeah, and we we already have, but we'll we'll see more.
3: Um, and we've seen it around the country, right? With with UK and Wales and and um, Canada playing with these ideas. I mean, all all around us, uh, these kind of things are happening. We have them. Uh, as a testing ground to see what's working, what's not working, so that we can make it that much better. I've heard a really good discussion, a good argument about creating a a national consortium uh, at at the national level that's a, that's a, that would turn into a regulatory body. And this is Jillian uh, Hadfield's suggestion, mm-hmm. and she likes the idea. And I think it, it's it there, there's a lot of good sense to this that we create private regulatory companies that uh, regulate lawyers in an, in an entity-based regulatory system. And that because the government doesn't have a lot of money to regulate all lawyers, they really are just a regulator of regulators. The regulation system is privacy-based, private-based, and that the the, the feds have a much smaller regulatory body that oversees that. And, and there's some sense to that as far as budgets and, and cost going. I like that idea. It could also be said that you have a national body that sets up a model process for entity regulation and then states can follow that voluntarily. Um, Supreme courts may adopt rules consistent with that model rule and then we continue to work the model until it, it, it really is a solid uh, marketable, successful model. It may take some iterations. It may take some changes. It may take multiple states trying new and inventive ways to do it until we begin to transform the profession to one that really is a model that is healthy and sustainable and profitable again.
1: I mean, I think, you know, at Lawyerist, our perspective is kind of um, we're going to help the lawyers who who get it and who understand that that this is what the future is going to look like. Um, which are some of the things we've talked about, right? You you just have to be more competitive. You are competing with non-lawyers, um, and you need to create a, a different model of profitability. That's kind of core to what we believe and what we do. Where I start getting frustrated again is <laughs> when we start talking about the court system. And, and I think access to courts is a huge part of access to justice. And maybe I've related this anecdote on the podcast before, but I was recently talking to a district court judge who was complaining about all of the pro se people he had to see and how how awful that was and and you know I tried to point out I mean that's isn't that like 70 to 80% of the people that you see like isn't what, what is it going to take to get you to think of your job as serving the vast majority of the people who come in front of you instead of lamenting the fact that more of them don't have lawyers with them. and and I, I'm not exactly sure how because I I've said before, I think courts are the one the one place where you know disruption can happen so quickly, um, but at the same time they're almost institutionally, unmotivated and, and potentially incapable of even seeing the road to disruption or doing something about it. And I get so frustrated because it just doesn't seem like there's any real will or momentum there. But I mean, imagine a family court system that built its entire model around, you know, standardizing on forms so that anybody who had to interact with the system could get basic things done simply through the court's website without having to go through a lawyer. Imagine how transformative that would be and what a difference it would make and then imagine, you know, how bad most state court filing systems, electronic filing systems are. And if you even think the courts could get their heads around doing it, <laughs> even if there was a will for it. And that's where I just start getting so frustrated again, because I, it would be so amazing. And I just don't think there's any chance of it happening or happening
3: well. Well, lawyers have an advantage over our court system. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're right about everything you say in, in the court system. But courts are, you know, grossly underfunded and are trying to do the work of the people on dimes for the dollar. And they're broken into their fiefdoms from the top court all the way down to the municipal court. And everyone has their own model. And trying to bring them into into sync so they all work together in some seamless way to provide services to the community uh, has been a challenge that hasn't been met at this point, even though as we get into um, greater solutions through through AI, uh, we find greater ways for uh, resolution of, of disputes electronically and online. You know, Shannon Salter, I know that you've you've interviewed in the past yep. in British Columbia, has created an amazing system. Up there to help do dispute resolution for small claims under six thousand dollars, and have resolved thousands without the need for court intervention or lawyers or trial or even appearing in court.
1: Well, I, you know, I think you just actually touched on something that I think is interesting. In the same way that lawyers who refuse to change are eventually going to become um, irrelevant, um, and out of business, most likely. I think what kind of flew under the radar during that conversation is that Shannon Salter's, um, civil resolution tribunal is an end around the courts, right? That came from the legislature. It's not a court entity. And, um, I think we're seeing more and more people are trying to resolve problems outside of the courts, um, because the courts are spending all of their time resolving debt collection lawsuits and um, <laughs> and uh, and family court matters to a lesser extent and, and landlord-tenant disputes. And may- maybe the courts just don't matter as much to justice going forward if they can't get their act together.
3: Well, until our legislature is going to invest millions or billions of dollars in the court system, uh, I, I think that it's the private industry that's going to find the solutions, right? In Canada, I think they just announced they're going to spend a billion dollars in, in, in court funding. If we did that, then we'd start to find those solutions. But in the meantime, we're back to um, you know bringing in capital, bringing in um, innovation, uh, finding outside sources for. People that aren't lawyers, perhaps, to find solutions to the legal problems by giving greater access. And so what Shannon's is doing is a good example of that. What, what PayPal does, you know, resolving their millions of disputes or eBay uh, without lawyers is a great example of the kind of things that we're capable of doing in private industry that will resolve problems in the court system and make great solutions in our entire – in the bigger picture of our, of our legal system. And I'll add this piece, too, with, with lawyers – there is kind of a cultural idea that we have to represent people from from cradle to grave, right? We take the case yeah. on. Only we know all of the answers and, and only we can parse all of the issues like a bar exam to decide everything people need and give them the complete story on their case. And I, I really bristle with that idea because some access, some legal solution, some legal answers, some help – is better than none at all. And that's the. what so many people face. Either They have no lawyer or they have a, a lawyer. And so things like unbundled legal services or or even mediocre services. Right. Uh, services that maybe is 15 minutes on the phone with with a lawyer. Maybe it's like, Avo, you write your question and, and lawyers volunteer answers. Some legal services are better than none. And so part of that, getting to that, that justice gap, that affordability, accessibility means that lawyers have to recognize that the full meal deal, cradle to grave, I'll try your case for you, is not – the solution. It is a very small piece, the very top of the pyramid for very group people, and we need to fill in the whole rest of that pyramid down to the very bottom of, of finding quick answers, be it by a chat bot or by a form, uh, all the way up to litigating. We need to have that full array of legal services provided before we're going to be able to fully represent people and provide the kind of access and affordability we need to.
1: Well, and you and our listeners have heard me harp on this before, that solving legal problems is just a small piece of solving actual problems and you know we've talked about part of access to justice is people don't understand they have a problem that a lawyer can help them solve or that or that it has a legal aspect to it sometimes people think they have legal problems that could probably be solved in other ways at at, at tech show at your summit um, at least one <laughs> right. person brought up the idea that you know there there are some there's some probably measurable percentage of domestic disputes that could be resolved with a with a couple's counselor and that don't need to be in court I think that's You know, it's potentially dangerous to think that couples counselors are the answer to all of those things. But but that's undoubtedly true that a lot of those things probably don't need to be in court. And um, the same is true for lots of other things. There are, you know, there's estate planning lawyers out there who are only doing estate plans and not actually helping people prepare for end of life. Uh, you're, You're leaving Uh, the the rest of the problem on the table and telling the person to go out and solve it themselves. And I think good lawyers are starting to expand their idea of what it means to help people solve problems as opposed to just um, approaching everybody who walks in the door as if it's a law school exam question.
3: I really think the answer to so much of this is, you know, going to the ends of the continuum and working inward. So, you know, on one side, the side that I think that you are the biggest advocate for helping solo and small practitioners build innovative, strong, uh, law firms, ones that do great on the report card, that have good business models that are growing and successful. And we, we we build and energize those law firms for their success because they're important that this is a thriving part and the heart of our of our system. On the other side We need to start developing and opening doors so that the tools that these solo and small firms have can be leveraged to be even more advantageous to them, to represent more people, to have more money, to have more growth, to have more opportunity for innovation, to bring in other disciplines to to help them really uh, grow the things that they can do. And so if we modify regulations to help do that and then we help grow and like what you're doing on your end, you know, we continue mm-hmm. to expand the entire profession in ways that, that people may not be seeing day to day at their offices, but can see in a bigger picture is going to make a stronger, healthier, sustainable practice for for all of us
1: Uh, there's also no rule that small firms can't build big solutions so
3: (laughs) no that's exactly right and and, and let me just put out this last piece too because i i know that we're we're getting to that last old so where do we go from here thing right we started this this summit in in chicago the tech show and just put you know 40 people around the table who who i think were some of the the brightest and most innovative and you know academics and and bar executives and and uh Tech folks and consultants and lawyers and we put them all together and said, let's talk about ways to do this. I want to continue that, that, that dialogue and I think as I travel through this year and continue to have these summits at things like ClioCon and at Lawyeronomics and everywhere else that lawyers are coming together to continue to create this dialogue, that at the end of the day, it makes sense for us to create a, a body – that is not controlled by the ABA or state bars who don't have constituency groups that can push back or get angry, but rather a group that can, leveraging really the, the the knowledge and skills that they bring to the table from a diverse group of folks to create what looks like a model blueprint so that when Supreme Courts or maybe legislatures uh, or bars decide they want to to do this, the laboring law has been done, and the model is available, and they can use some or part or all of it as they begin to change the regulations a bit at a time or a lot at a time. But I think having a model set out there for people to use for Supreme Courts to look at to make these changes is going to be critical because I'm not holding my breath for the ABA to do it. I'm not holding my breath for state bars to do it. I would love them to do it, but we've waited a long time. And we're not seeing them. They're not they're not coming. And so I'm looking forward to convening this this group and and starting the creation of this blueprint and then leaving it out there as a model and available to whoever would like to take it and use it and certainly meeting with Supreme Courts and helping change uh, the profession. Uh, is critical. And I I think there's lots of opportunity to do that, but it starts with a blueprint and it starts with a model. And that's what we're going to be talking about as we go state to state and, and convention to convention and convene these summits to help uh, really figure out the best way to do that. Well,
1: Patrick, thanks so much for talking about this with us today. I think that's a good place to end. So we'll be seeing you and talking to you more. And uh, if our listeners run into you, I think we've given them lots to chat you up about.
3: Sam, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure on the show. Always, always wonderful to share ideas and, uh,
0: and thoughts with you.